but that victimhood and what I've noticed is like a lot of women will hold on to it and thus becoming feminist and I hate all men and all men are the same and it's like well whatever male did whatever to you is not actually a man because real men don't do you know obscene horrible things to women let's go Welcome to Citizen. We've got a special guest today, Marissa Hardy from California. How's it going? Pretty good. I feel good. Nice good. to be in Texas. Yeah, it is. It's better than California, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the reason I brought you here today is because we have your bio lot. No, I'm just kidding. This is not Maury Povich. Uh, we should do that one day. We should totally shock somebody with a fucking weird like, family member. You're not the mother. <laughs> you're not. Your mom is actually not your mom. No. Um, the reason you're here today is because I've been, uh, and we talked about this yesterday, but I've been trying to have more women on the show, um, <clears throat> particularly people with like regular life experience and jobs and shit, not like necessarily commentators in politics, which is, you know, uh, the people that you usually see on these circuits because <clears throat> I feel like there's this big disconnect in modern society between men and women, ordinary yeah. people. Um, so I want to discuss the experiences of modern life for women uh, so our mostly male audience can kind of, you know, get a sense of what's going on out there. Absolutely. Uh, and maybe reconnect a little bit. But before we get into all of that, um, <clears throat> tell me where you're from and, and your upbringing and stuff like that. I'm from Northern California. Roseville. It's about 30 minutes north of Sacramento, suburban area. Um, yeah, so I grew up there. I have three sisters, mom and dad. Um, life was pretty simple and easy until it wasn't. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah. What does that mean, life was simple and easy? Uh, well, before you know, I became a woman. I guess since you have mostly male audience, it's important to talk about, but just the things that I went through um, with sexual assault and just all of that and becoming a fighter and what that means, so yeah. What does it mean? Uh, well, having the spirit of a fighter and not victimizing yourself mm. and not falling into the trap of like feminism and victimhood um, you become a fighter to become a better lover, a better friend, uh, part of society, you know. <clears throat> yeah, it seems like uh, people blame the young generations on for, the, for this quite a bit, but it's been going on for a lot longer than that. Uh, this proclivity we have to kind of lean into the victim culture, you know. It's, yeah. it's, uh, t it's always been very bizarre to me. I, I understand it. In a way, in the same way that your dog will whine when it wants to be petted or fed, right? <laughs> yeah. But that's what it is. Like you're, you're whining for a result. Yeah. Seems like there's probably a better option than that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um. <clears throat> so, it's interesting to me that a woman on the younger side connected victimhood and feminism. Now that probably wasn't always the case. I think feminism in the early days was probably a useful thing right well the victimhood it's like yes what i had gone through was real and my feelings were valid but that victimhood and what i've noticed is like a lot of women will hold on to it and thus becoming feminist and i hate all men and all men are the same and it's like well whatever male did whatever to you mm. is not actually a man because real men don't do you know obscene horrible things to sure. women <clears throat> well what was it what your uh your dad was is a police officer right or was 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 yeah. SWAT How, detective. what was that like uh growing up in high school and shit because you know it's like pre <laughs> preachers kids are assholes cops kids can go either way you know yeah I mean? um i mean we were exposed i would say in the best way to the reality of what's going on and there's a lot of gang activity in, in the Sacramento area. A lot of gang area. activity. And I talk about it in my book, you know, certain profiles and identities and not to be around. Um, I think me and my sisters got a good taste of um, 
what not to do. Mm-hmm. And for someone like me, I was like, well, it can't be that bad. So let me try it myself. I had to learn things on my own. So I kind of went the other way, um, you know, but it was, uh, I would say we got more reality than most kids do in high school and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, what I, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, what it was like, um, from an identity perspective as a woman going through primary education through middle and high school and shit like that, as you become a woman, um, there is a lot of pressure to fall into that victimhood shit, even before anything bad may have happened to you. Right. Just like right. as a class of people, uh, uh, what women are, have historically oppressed. That's the narrative, right? They've always been historically oppressed. So <clears throat> right out of the gate, you have this opportunity to leverage a victim status for your advantage, right? Yeah, did did but, you feel, did you notice that when you were younger or is it just like? No, I didn't because I was really involved in sports. Soccer was my mm. number one sport. I was really good at it. I played for the Olympic development program. Like I was just an athletic kid. My only focus was sports and school. And I think that was my identity. Um, and I don't, I definitely, I know I fell into the victimhood complex uh, around my 16th year after the first sexual assault that I experienced because it just, I it totally took the rose-colored glasses off mm. and <clears throat> kind of exposed me like I'm not just an athlete or a cop's kid or came from a family of bakers. Like mm. I'm a woman being preyed on now by predators. Not saying all men are predators, sure, but yeah. you know, yeah. the creepy ones. Um, <laughs> So you're uh, a family of bakers like Peter Malark from fucking The Hunger Games or some shit? <laughs> no. Uh, my family owned a bakery go- growing up called yeah. uh, Hardy Breads. We it's made banana bread. Part- oh, banana bread. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's one of the things about – and it's it, it's probably the most nefarious part about um, whatever you want to call it, like grooming or child sex trauma, whatever, however you want to categorize it is that you force and and it it isn't just sexual stuff either sometimes it's like a parent commits suicide of a friend that that happened to her when she was young um like it forces you to grow up faster than you should have had to right so you miss out on some of that developmental period and then then when you get older in situations where you need to lean on your experience as a human being with stuff like low level conflict resolution or coping skills and shit. Well, you didn't have time to do any of that, right? Absolutely. Cause you were too busy, uh, being a, 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 an adult when you didn't need to be. So that's something that, you know, it's not some, some people will say that it's irreparable. Like you can't fix it. I don't think that's true. Right. Cause I know plenty of people who have made their way through, like I was, I had the shit kicked out of me when I was a kid. I, I turned out, pretty terrible for a while but (laughs) it worked out in the end but yeah it's like uh that's the real damage that it creates and i think that's it's important to understand that that's the real damage it creates because then you know how to fucking fix it right right um so before we get into fixing it let's go through you know kind of your experience uh with that and it's in the book by the way the book's called still fucking alive um the true story of a trans this uh, can't read <laughs> can't read the true story of transforming from a victim and survivor into a fighter, which I think is uh, a really good way to put that. So that's the name of the book, Marissa Hardy, Marissa with two S's, by the way, which two is S's, one R. kind of obnoxious to be honest, but whatever. That's um, the right way to spell uh, who, it. Who's who knows? Who are you to say it? No. Um, <clears throat> so you're a cop's kid, yeah. right? Everything's going pretty well in your life. I'm sure it's different. Yeah being a cop's kid, being multiracial and shit like that. Oh my gosh, so many dynamics. Yeah. But the crazy thing about being having a white mom and a black dad is I never really saw color growing up. Like I just saw everyone as who they were. I didn't understand like what being white meant or what being black. Like I that wasn't a thing growing up. It was just this is my family, this is who I am. You know, I have four all full biological sisters, three mm. biological sisters. And we all look different, and that that was just it. Like, I, I didn't really put two and two together that I was a mixed kid until I got to high school, to be honest. And mm-hmm. even then, I really didn't care. I still don't really care now. I mean, I respect everyone's, you know, what they are, but 
it doesn't make an impact on like what I see in myself or others. Well, what was your identity? Like if you had to, before anything, uh, I guess, overtly traumatic happened to you, I'm I'm very curious about this from your perspective, because I I think about this when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I think, you know, trads, like traditional people, the dude is thinking about his career. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to be this. And it's like, a, it's stupid, right? It's like a firefighter, or a fucking cowboy or some yeah. shit. Nothing. You could be a firefighter and you could be a cowboy, I guess, but like astronaut or baseball, like a professional athlete. That's what dudes are thinking about when they're 10, 12, 13 years old yeah. for the most part. Um, and you know, women, if they're raised in a more traditional household are thinking about marriage and shit like that when they're, you know, six, seven, eight, ten, whatever the fuck there that when you're playing games, that's the kind of games you're playing, right? So that's how oh, you're yeah. kind of coming to understand what your identity is. <clears throat> what was that for you? Like what when you were ten or twelve or whatever, what were you thinking about? I was thinking about playing soccer at a collegiate mm. level. I was thinking that but I wanted as to, a means to an end, like because you wanted to go to, to college and get an I education to to or did you want to play I soccer? wanted to meet my future husband in college. I like daydreamed about my wedding. You know, I knew I was a hardy. I like struggled with like, dang, I don't want to change my last name. Like that meant a lot to me. My sisters meant a lot. Why? Just because you all had the same last name? Just because we were a tight family unit. Mm. It's different growing up one with sisters and then having three of them is just kind of, you know, that was my identity. I would say mostly Mm. whatever my sisters were doing, I wanted to do too. And you have how many? Three. And they're all two older and one younger. Yeah. And what was that like? Just it's all girls, right? All girls, and then a dude, and my dad and my yeah. mom. Um, it was great. I Wait, mean, your dad is where is he from? He's from Southern California, but he okay. grew up in Carmichael, California. And your mom is from Kansas, which is hot Kansas. Oh wow! Yeah, the middle of fucking nowhere. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you've got two older sisters. Um, did you guys all go to the same school? You were you were living in the same household. I would yeah. Know, right? So. Uh, when I was entering high school, they were already in college, but everyone knew the Hardy girls. Mm. So it was just kind of like, you know, one after another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you crank out four of them, that's going to happen, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. So now take me through, um, you're living this ordinary life. You're playing, you're going, what, uh, when this negative shit started happening with this guy the first time, how old were you? I was 15. 15. And you yeah. were in, what, a sophomore in high school then? Yeah. Probably, yeah. Um, and you were playing soccer still? I was playing soccer. Mm. I was involved in extracurricular activities. I was just a normal kid, you know. I did really well in school. Um, but it was on <laughs> September 11th, 2013. Yeah. And my friend was just walking home. My friend, I thought he was my friend, was walking home from school. It was kind of hot. And he asked if he can come over for a glass of water. Mm. And I said, sure, no problem. You know, my family was always super welcoming. But that was a big no-no growing up with a dad as a police officer. No boys in the house. Mm. And if they are, if they do come over, I'm going to sit on the couch in my cowboy boots and underwear and clean my gun and practice shooting people on the TV. Like, that was it. And That's just a normal <laughs> day for me. He knows. He sees it. He's he's fortunate enough to see that. Yeah, so that was first and foremost. I broke my dad's rule, but I just thought, you know, this is my friend. Nothing mm. bad's going to happen. Well, it turns out dad had rules for a reason. Yes, uh. absolutely. And um, this boy just, he tried to, he wrestled me on my bed, tried to get on top of me. I kicked him off um, and got him out of the house pretty much. But it, that itself was traumatizing. But what followed after was pretty fucked up. I told one friend and then it, a game of telephone, mm. the whole high school <laughs> district found out and it just, it was really bad. I got bullied pretty harshly for that. So. Um, but how did that go down? Just out of curiosity, like what did, cause that we, this is 2013 you said? Yeah. So it's, so we're kind of in a period, time period where high schools are a little bit more sensitive to kids getting bullied by then, right? It wasn't like. When I was growing up, if you did some stupid shit and got bullied for it, it's like you just got to go fight that guy. Yeah. Or it's that's just how it is, right? Or uh, if it's a, or if women are way worse than dudes. Dudes, yeah. we'll just pick on somebody until they fight us, and then we're friends. 
you guys will annihilate each other for the entirety of your friendship. Yes. You'll already be friends and still annihilate each other. It's fucking bananas to me. Yeah, a lot of people that I thought were my <clears throat> friends just were the first people to say something mm. negative. Like, oh, she's lying. This didn't happen. She's a slut. All, the, all these things. It was really bad. Um, all over social media. Everything was just out there. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I can't believe this is actually happening to me right now. Um, why is no one... Why, why is no one taking this seriously? Why is no one, you know, no one really knew what sexual assault was or mm. even being like, you know, aggressively can't come on by mm. someone else. You know, it, it, it's very uncomfortable. But um, so, yeah, that happened. And it ultimately led to like my mom and dad eventually separating mm. because when my dad found out, he was pretty pissed that a boy <laughs> was over at the house and um you know i always now i'm in a place where like i understand he did like maybe what he was taught or only knew how to do Mm. and i hold no grudges but it's just what happened but yeah i got popped in the face when he found out about that experience and that was pretty traumatizing um because i learned that like boundaries didn't matter like my personal space didn't matter and like my yes and no like i told this high school kid like no like don't touch me. Like, I remember even telling him, like, please stop. And mm. I, like, that always stuck with me because <clears throat> I was politely asking this boy who was sexually trying to sexually assault me to please mm. stop. Like, that always stuck with me. And I was like, dang. And then with my father, I just kind of learned, like, my voice didn't matter. Mm. Like, I'm telling you what happened. I'm showing you, like, I'm being bullied. Like, and you pop me in the face and pop my jaw out of place to the point I pissed my pants. <laughs> you know, it hurt. And, um, that kind of took my voice away, which is a very dangerous thing for women because mm. the second your voice <clears throat> is gone and and you just kind of let things happen to you, allow things happen to you, it's very dangerous. Well, know? that's one of the things we do to psychologically interrogate people. Yeah. Right. So probably not a great thing. How would you have preferred, like your dad, one, and not to defend him or anything, but your dad was going to have some kind of reaction to that mm-hmm. because his job is to protect you and... He tried to give you guidance on how that should work, but you're a fucking kid, right? I mean, kids yeah. are going to do dumb shit. So he's mad. He's going to do something. I'm not saying he should have hit you. Obviously, that's dumb. Uh, well, maybe crack you in the back of the head or something, but not in the face, <laughs> right? You don't fuck with a moneymaker. Um, <clears throat> but so when I'm acting like an idiot, and or if one of my soldiers was acting like an idiot, it's like, hey, dumb, dumb. Yeah. But not enough to make them piss themselves. That's probably a good rule of thumb. But it's like, what? how would you have preferred he react in that moment like if looking back on it is there a way that he could have react and i'm saying this is for the dads in the audience here i don't think that our dads and our audience are necessarily going to fucking smack their daughters if they do something dumb but that's not the only wrong answer there's a lot of wrong answers in how to handle that situation right? i think the right answer especially if you have young daughters or girls is to really it's a I feel like it's a father's duty to understand like girls become women Mm. and women set the tone of families. And, you know, if you want to make a better future for the world, like focus on your own home first. Sure. And yeah, my friend Chad Wright likes to say uh, the smallest form of government is the family. Yes. And um, I feel the only appropriate, I mean, there's so there's, it depends whatever family you're in, but I think the best thing that could have happened would have just been, hey, I'm sorry that happened to you. Mm. What do you need from me? And just have given me that space to either cry or just feel comfort um, and to know that he was there to like protect me and really mm. do something instead of maybe lashing any of his anger and emotions, because obviously he was feeling that onto me. You know, um, I kind of feel like I just needed someone to be there for me. Um, did, did he have any interaction with the, the male in question? No, he didn't. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So this is 2013 and you're a sophomore, right? Yeah. And then, uh, what, what happens after that? Like you're getting fucked around with a school. The family life is starting to break apart. Yeah. Um, so my mom and I left like that week, um, and my parents weren't or they were already not doing too well but that kind of just was her reason like okay let's get out of here so we left um and that was pretty traumatizing mentally because i for years i put the blame of my parents separation and divorce on myself 
Um, so not only was I trying to recover from the sexual assault, but then my parents split up. And then I didn't have a relationship with my father. Um, and the lack of that, and I always try and lift up men as much as I can, like be there for your children, be there for your family, because the absence of a father and my experience led me to search for a father figure, mm. um, which allowed space for a predator to come in. And that would lead me to the very first time that I was raped. Mm. So we talk a lot about, uh, it's a, it's a recurring theme in, <clears throat> in certainly the circles that I run in right now, but I think in, in a lot of modern philosophical and social debate about young men in fatherless homes. Right. So for the, over the last 50 years or so, for the first time in recorded history, um, fatherless homes have become the number one predictor of criminal behavior instead mm -hmm. of just poverty it used to be poverty for as long as we'd been researching for 200 years. Um, and now it's fatherless homes, which, you know, a lot of overlap in those two situations as well, but it's not unique. Um, and we see the fallout from that. It's, it's young, angry, misguided dudes. They've got a lot of testosterone and not a lot of common sense. Right. Yeah. So it's like a loaded gun with, just a hair trigger and nobody to really aim it. <clears throat> um, and we see how it manifests in, in mass shootings, gang activity, a lot of it's suicide. Um, but I don't hear a lot of people talking about young women because, well, I don't know why, but one of the things I, I say a lot is that everything that a young man learns about how he should treat women, he learns from how his dad treats his mom right mm -hmm. and everything a young woman learns about how she should be treated by men is how dad treats mom right that's yes. that's kind of like the foundation for that so you you you're able to articulate it now but did you realize at the time it's hard to tell when you're in it that i'm there's part of this equation missing now and i'm gonna go looking for it right i didn't know at the time it was just an inner deep feeling like I just remember like you know how you know you need coffee in the morning or whatever there was a piece of me that was missing um you know my dad was at every soccer game he was my biggest fan he was my best friend I was his little buddy like we looked the most alike you know he's my first love and to lose that um so abruptly was really difficult I didn't know consciously that I was looking for a father figure um <clears throat> But I w knew I was looking for something. Well, if you were talking, let's say, uh, to a room full of teenage girls right now about this subject, um, you know, because one, one of the things that happens, and it's you, you told me it's the reason you wrote the book in the first place, is to kind of to share your story. But one of the things that happens <clears throat> is... Uh, it's like it's the reason that Jesus talked in parables in the Bible, right? Because it's mm -hmm. it's a short kind of quippy story that's like here's a, a, a an ethical concept that you should follow, and here's an example of it, right? right? So if you're talking to a room full of teenage girls, particularly ones that don't have dads in the homes or they're not close to their dad anymore, um, how do you explain to them what that feels like? to be out searching for a father figure and how it can be, especially in your, uh, uh, in, when you're going through puberty and shit like that, right. Or just on the other side of puberty, when you're hypersexualized as a teenager, like it, those two things can get very confused very yeah, quickly. There's right? a lot going on. Um, this episode is brought to you by ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros Ghostbed. It's the best bed in the world. It's the most comfortable sheets, pillows, the whole thing. I've got them all, man. And, you know, they wanted to extend their best possible offer to Drink It Bros. They've been with us for a very long time. So this is the email they sent us. We want Drink It Bros to get the best offer. So I updated the code for 50% site-wide. That's 50% site-wide. Use the code Drinkin' Bros. Drinkin' Bros with no G. For 50% off site-wide, everything that you buy on this site is going to be 50% off. Again, they get the best pillows, sheets, mattresses. They get the mattress protector. Uh, if you're if you're sloppy and spill things and you don't want to jack up your mattress, they have pretty much everything you need. They've got weighted blankets now. 
They've got the adjustable base, which we really like. I've got one in my home. So go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros. Use the code drink it bros for 50% off site wide. And don't forget about their page to go plan. If you're with approved credit, you're going to be able to pay this thing off over the course of three to five years for 25 to 35 bucks a month. It's nothing. Go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros today and use the code drink it bros for 50% off. This episode is also brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. Dot com the best coffee in the world as a matter of fact they won both the gold and bronze medal at the golden bean awards this year for their exclusive coffee club entries in the elite category so the best coffee on earth literally was circus bear by black rifle one of their ecs so i recommend that you go sign up for the black rifle coffee club use the code citizen you're going to get those points off and uh you know you get all the benefits from being in the coffee club you get the free shipping you get access to all the partner deals uh, uh you get access to the exclusive coffee club you get access to any new products that come out before anybody else does you know it's a very large club that they have over there and the coffees are premium every single one of them is good uh you, you're going to get experience for you you can do just the plain coffee club and if you want your two bags of, of uh, espresso or your two bags of silence or smooth or whatever it is you drink you can get those two bags or one bag or whatever you want every month or and or rather you can use the ecs the exclusive coffee club and get access to some of the most premium coffees on the planet and kind of learn what it is that you like you know what i mean so then you can order those premium coffees from black rifle as well so and we all know they got the best branding the best merch and their buddies you know we're all friends here uh, we love Black Rifle. So go to BlackRifleCoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, or buy something. Do whatever you want. Um, use the code CITIZEN. You're going to get those points off. This episode is brought to you by FirstForm.com forward slash CITIZEN. Free shipping on all orders over $75 when you use the link. And you're not going to spend less than $75. Bucks. I mean, they get the best products in the world, especially the OptiGreens. You know me. I don't eat vegetables um, because they're fucking pointless. So... I supplement with OptiGreens 50 from First Form. It is precisely formulated green superfood powder meant for overall immune system support and digestive health. It's really good, aside from just getting the daily greens into your body that you need. And make sure, by the way, you're taking this with MCT because you have to take anything like this with MCT. 80% of your immune system is located in your gut and your digestive tract, right? So healthy digestion is essential for overall health and wellness, not to mention that most of your serotonin, I think 96% of your serotonin or 94% is made in your gut as well. So you're going to be in a better mood. You're going to feel better physically, and you're going to feel better mentally if you are taking these greens. OptiGreen 50 has 50 chosen ingredients, uh, effectively dosed. It's not necessarily how many ingredients there are, though, but it's, a, it's about the right amount of each. Taste and texture, no, like no other product in the market. It's not gritty. It doesn't have a weird flavor. It's got sweet berry flavors, actually. 100% uh, of the greens are all grown and manufactured inside the United States, and they are bioavailable. Now, they've got other products as well. They've got the microfactor, which you see behind me on every show, uh, and I take them every day. You know, you got essential fatty acids, CoQ10, get all the stuff you need in one little packet for your daily vitamin pack. And you mix that, you, you make yourself uh, uh, OptiGreens 50 shake, and you, and you take those pills with it, and you're going to improve your life precipitously. You're going to feel better, you're going to look better, so on and so forth. So go to firstform.com, that's 1-S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com, forward slash citizen, use the code, you're going to get free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks. So how do you like, I guess the question is how, if you, if you were talking to a room full of young women, how do you articulate that? Like, this is what it's going to feel or seem like. And these are the kind of people that are going to try to come take advantage of that. You know what I mean? I would, I would tell these young women that what you're feeling right now is just, um, an absence of something. So you have mm -hmm. to fill that void with good things. Um, whether that be sports or your education or hobbies or good girlfriends or getting closer to, you know, other family members, mm -hmm. strong family members. Um, but there's no substitute for the masculine. There's right? no substitute. Like you, you have to have a well-adjusted man in your life. Yeah. And that's why this uh, is, yeah. topic is so important. And, you know, I'm so grateful to be on this audience because, you know, I still 
love my father. I still, you know, want to have a family with a strong man mm. beside me it, because it is so important to the whole collective of everything, you know. <clears throat> was that always the case, though? I and mean, I'm sure there was a period, and we'll get into it, but I'm sure there was a period after you kind of, like, there's the shock of what's happening to you, and then you get to sit in it for a little while after it's over, and you're like, fuck, now I've got to live with this for the rest of my life, and that's where, you know, uh, uh, reckless behavior, drugs, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's it's a typical pattern, right? right. Um, but at some point, you have to, like, learn how to cope with that shit. Um, I assume at some point there was a point where you were just, like, what what we would call black pilled, like completely out of the process. Like I'm not dealing with this shit anymore. Well, uh, <clears throat> well, before before we get into that, let's talk about the this next instance because the word groomer gets thrown around a lot these days, right? Yes. For political reasons, often it is correct. I think it's correctly used. A lot of times it's just used as a fucking insult, right? Mm -hmm. When somebody doesn't like somebody else's behavior. So your case. I've read your book. Your case is a, that's a legit groomer. Right? Yes. <laughs> um, so walk me through, walk the audience through that. And the only, I'm not trying to have you re-experience your fucking situation here. Mm -hmm. I just want people to see, like understand what a real practical example that looks like so they can keep an eye out. Okay. So excuse me if I get choppy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wrote the book, I've talked about it, but it's still hard to talk about. Um, so I met, his name is Jack in the book. Mm -hmm. 37 years old at the time. He's and you're 15? 15. And, you know, I would write on this website, you know, just kind of my feelings. It was, you know, you can ask questions, this and that, um, about what I was going through. And he was a, com a constant commenter or, you know, engaging with my post. Mm. And he, over time, built, I guess, a friendship and trust with me. And that eventually led into us meeting for the first time and how did you how did you meet this dude in the first place like on the internet or some shit yeah which platform reddit reddit okay <laughs> wow i didn't know that i mean i know so f I th i'm pretty sure that facebook is the number one place where groomers meet their victims yeah still even today after all the press it's gone on about it so you met him on reddit what what board just out of curiosity oh i don't want to okay know. that's fine <laughs> It's just, that's kind of, I've never heard that one before, so I'm curious, but you can yeah. tell me later. Um, so what was the initial, I guess, like, obviously you're a young woman who's been mistreated and now your relationship with your father has been interrupted. So you're looking for, a, whether you know it or not, right? You're looking right. for that male role model, uh, father figure thing. Um, <clears throat> and this was someone who was validating my feelings so the things that i needed because you asked like mm. what could have your dad have done um that he didn't do and you know i talked about what happened the very first sexual assault experience and you know i was asking questions i was having a really hard time because it was i was experiencing suicidal ideation i was experiencing depression and anxiety for the first time these things I didn't even know what they were, and I was experiencing them. Mm -hmm. There was no label for them. I mean, I'm 15 years old. This is before mental health was really talked about on social media and things. Um, and he was validating my feelings and, you know, giving give me, me Give things. me an example of a conversation. I, and I, again, I don't mean to drill down too far into it, but I think it's important for the audience to say when you, if they in passing or in experience, Hear someone speaking to a young woman this way, they need to recognize what it is, right? Okay. Um, if a young woman says, you know, for me, I was really, really tired, um, and I also wasn't mm. playing soccer anymore. Mm. So I was tired, and I was eating a lot, I was gaining weight, I just wasn't feeling good about mm. myself. And he would say things like, well, you're still beautiful, you know, there's still things like, um, there's more to life. There's more to life that I could show you, there's more to life that you can show yourself. They just... Comments like that coming from an older man to a younger woman are just red flag immediately, especially when they're commenting like, you know, well, you're still beautiful, okay. And it's it's very small, but that one comment is just a building block of leading to so many other things. Right. That's why I, I like envision it like <laughs> as grooming, like it starts like with one brick and then it gets higher and higher and then it just escalates until, you know, um, you're at a different level where they're calling you sexy or mm. this or that, and it's just not okay. Well, there's, there's 
So, you know, if I was talking to, uh, and this, this is a difficult thing to conceptualize because obviously as an adult man, you don't want to, uh, you have to understand the way that the things you say to a young woman are received, right? Yes. They are very impressionable at that age, whether you have any ill intent or not. Yeah. And you don't want to get yourself into a fucking, uh, <laughs> into that situation no. Un- unintentionally. Right. Obviously you don't want to be in that situation at all, but certainly not unintentionally. But it's like, it's, it, it can start off with, uh, seemingly good intentions, right? right? Like you don't, it's uncomfortable to see somebody feel bad about themselves. So the yeah. natural inclination for a good person is going to be to reassure them like, Hey, this isn't like what you're saying is you're just, it, it's negativity, right? You're depressed. That's why you're saying this. And that's why you're behaving this way. Stop doing that. One of the I ways to do the that best is the, way to go about it is, um, if you're trying to lift someone up, who's maybe underage or in that victimhood complex or whatever, and you're not a creep is give them solutions. Like becoming a fighter, I've learned like anytime I fall into a victimhood complex and if someone tells me like, oh, like, you know, you're fine or they try to talk about my appearance or like my heart or things Mm. going on. It's like, no, like I fucked up, like gives people direction. And I think that's what men are really good at. And you know, their strong suit is guiding and giving direction. Like there's no need to, I mean, obviously your partner, your wife, your girlfriend, Mm. you can compliment all the time and make them feel good. But in situations like that, it's like, you know, young people specifically just need direction and guidance. That's, that's all it is. Well, I can tell you this from, you know, being an adult human being, a man that's been in relationships with women, they don't always want their problems solved. They just want to be validated, <laughs> right? A lot of the time. Yeah. But I think that's a good, that's a good tip for when you're dealing, because there's got to be a fucking a barrier mm-hmm. between any kind of sexualization when you're talking to a child, right? <laughs> yeah. Whether whether it's intentional or not, I don't. I don't think. I I I've, I can see how because you're so impressionable at a at a young sexualized age that any compliment from an older man, particularly when you know, whether it's benign or otherwise, right? Even if it was comp- with the best of intentions, uh, it can read like that to mm-hmm. the girl, right? To the young woman, that's a problem. So <clears throat> I like that idea of redirecting, like have you talked to a counselor or, you know, do you have close friends you can trust to talk to about this? What about your pa- actual parent? You know yeah. what I mean? Something like that. Um, because I don't think that an adult and a child should have secrets no. unless it's your fucking parent. You know what I mean? Yes. Or a guardian or whatever the fuck. But that's 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 got to be a hard line in the sand. And it's for everybody's. It's like having a good contract between friends who are business partners. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you don't want things going off the rails there. It's good to have uh, It's good to, It's good good to. to have safeguards, I guess you could say. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I want to come back to something you said before about losing your voice. That experience in 2013 and in the aftermath, both with your dad, parents splitting up, your dad not taking it well, and then, you know, the bullshit that your classmates pulled, I assume that made you feel like you, that there was no one you'd go to when this grown man started to groom you, once you realized it, right? Like, yeah. what, what do you do there? Because then you feel like you're in trouble. Yes. Right. Again, for yeah. something that had that you weren't necessarily guilty of. Exactly. And that's why I say, like, if you're a father listening right now or a mom or someone who wants to have kids, if you if a young girl or boy comes to you and tells you what happened, be that safe place for them, because if it does happen again or if it will continue to happen, like they need someone in their corner that they know is like safe. Like I can talk mm. to this person. They're going to help me figure it out. Um and because when it was happening and I was, I did start to realize that I, I won, I thought it was okay because no one stepped up. No one asked me if I was okay. I got punished for it. I just thought, okay, I'm supposed to just take it. This is maybe this is a rite of passage. Maybe What's this the is, it? What, what are you punished for what exactly? Uh, I guess for being sexually assaulted and or raped or you groomed. Mean the, the first time or the, the, <laughs> yeah. you're talking about the older man or the first one? Um, or both, I guess. Both. Yeah. They both seem like that was just, that was okay. And so I didn't think, I th- I felt like speaking up about it or talking about it. One, I'd get in trouble. Two, I'd, I would just get called an idiot. I was like, mm. you know, I just thought this was normal at that point. And like, uh, d- does, 
I, I, I'm not a woman, so I don't know. I feel like you got to, <laughs> I think you have to spend more time. Like you have to teach a, a young male how to use his power in an ethical and just way, right? Absolutely. And control it. But women have to be really paranoid, right? Mm-hmm. Like you've, it's for a variety. Some, some of it is just social conditioning, right? Yeah. Some of it is just like, we are biologically programmed to find girls and get them pregnant. And women are biologically programmed to get pregnant and be empathetic. When you combine those two things, you're super empathetic about my plight, right? Mm-hmm. Which is just a gateway for me. You know what I mean? With my dumb, dumb caveman brain. So there's a lot more. It's like <clears throat> the there's this common social narrative that black people have to sit their kids down and explain how to interact with police to them. Mm-hmm. I just be polite to every human being you meet unless they're a dick to you. Right. Yeah. That seems that's pretty easy where it really makes sense to me is for young women. Like they really need to be instructed on how to receive and, and perceive signals from men, not just their peers, but older men as well. Right. right. Cause you, uh, it's like, you're stuck in this situation. You're 15, you're dumb as shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? No matter how many books you can read or whatever fucking math you can do, like book smarts, that's fine. But as a human being, you're dumb. You don't know mm-hmm. shit at 15. I didn't know shit until I was like 30, to be honest. Um, and it sounds like even though you had already been through some shit, you were still completely uh, uh, unprepared for this new situation. Yeah. Is there, when you think back on it, is there anything that could have been done to prepare you to see warning signs or whatever the fuck. You I, know mean, what I mean, because it is tough. I mean, it, a lot all the way up until the point that it becomes wrong, it feels pretty nice, right? Yeah. You're finally getting validated and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, I feel my father prepared us to the best that he could, um, but I also feel like my mother could have prepared us a little bit better. Me and my sisters, <clears throat> um, and that's why I'm sharing my story because. Growing up, you hear from a man's perspective, like these criminals. And growing up, I never, I never imagined myself being a criminal or, mm. you know, doing drugs or anything. I was like, that's so far distant reality. Like that felt like a third world country to me. Hearing his stories, you know, but just I don't know. It just had that feeling, especially him being a cop. It was like that barrier. Like that'll never be me. So I didn't necessarily absorb the information mm. he was taking from me. Um, now that I'm a woman and like I want to have kids, I think like, okay, when I have daughters, I'm going to sit them down and tell them my story and what happened mm. and prepare them for that, you know, once they go through puberty and things like, like that, even maybe before then, and also be um, uh, present myself that way as well. So, you know, the kids learn by yeah. looking at their parents, but yeah, yeah. my mom was so sheltered growing up that she had no experience. So... I think it is important. Like I said, my, your family only does as best that, as they can and sure, yeah. that they're taught. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it's it from what you say, it doesn't sound like your dad handled it very well either. And uh, maybe, maybe he just wasn't capable, right? Yeah. And that's a problem too. That's some. That's another issue for us as a society to solve is to make, you know, men ready to handle that situation. Absolutely. I think because it's fucked up, but. What like I, I'm very curious to hear your thought on that. Like, what are you gonna <clears throat> if you have daughters? What are you gonna talk? Like, how do you talk to them about this? Because you want to communicate it with them in a way that articulates the danger mm-hmm. without making them neurotic, man-hating lunatics, right? Right. Because it's like it's we just have this for some reason human beings just like to go and the complete as far to the opposite side of something as they can, which yeah. doesn't make any fucking sense. Right. Like you don't do that in any other facet of life. Yeah. Really. So <clears throat> I think what I've kind of ingrained in myself now is just to lead by example, by the man that I choose and like allow him and how he treats me to be an example of what is a good man. Mm. Um, and then also how I present myself, you know, self-respect and self-worth has a lot to do with it. Yeah, what, um, what you tolerate from other people, your kids will, yes. they'll, they will learn 93% according to, I don't know how they come up with that number, but it makes sense to me. 93, <laughs> 9, 93% of communication is nonverbal, like yeah. body language, not just body language, but the things that we tolerate in conversation even, right? Right. Um, or or in day-to-day behavior. Like that's the, the bulk, we'll say, of 
communication is nonverbal. And that's especially true with children watching their parents, I think, right? Absolutely. Because I'm trying to figure out how to be a human being. And the only two act, like adult human beings I really know and see on a regular basis are these two assholes that live down the hall from me, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, you, that, that the way that you treat each other in the home is super fucking important. Yeah, I am a firm believer in the atomic family unit and what that means. Um, but I think leading by example. But then also when the time comes, you know, really sitting my future daughters down and explaining to them, you know, maybe I'll give them my book to read and read it with them and answer questions that they have and walk them through certain things. Um, but yeah, I think that's just kind of how I would do it. And I don't know, <laughs> I guess I'll just take it as it comes. Yeah. And the, you know, I said this before, uh, the dads have rules for a reason, right? Yeah. Like it, it's, but that's not where it ends. Mm. You can, it's not enough to give your kids guidance. You have to give them example as well. And then you have to give them, uh, I, one of the other tools in the tool belt, so to speak is practical experience. Uh, so, Brett uh, Weinstein and his wife, Heather Hang wrote this book called The Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, they're both evolutionary biologists. So they talk about parenting from the perspective of an evolutionary biologist. One of the things that we've grown to believe as a society is that uh, the purpose of, like the biological purpose of procreation is to spread your seed as much as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what we found through more research is, and th this is so research on all different levels of animal, right? Bugs, whatever the fuck from the tiniest brain with no central nervous system, like a starfish or something, mm -hmm. uh, up to, you know, advanced mammals like us and dolphins and monkeys and shit. <clears throat> what we found is it's not just about, making as many babies as possible. It's about spreading your genetics as far into the future as possible, right? right? That's why we build civilizations. Otherwise, we would just be cavemen fucking in a field somewhere, right? right. Just trying to make as like Genghis Khan, conquering <laughs> shit and doing that. Now, we built communities because that's what safeguards us and allows you know, our genetics to pass into the future. That mm -hmm. That's a biological imperative. So it's like you have to have all of these different things in your tool belt you've got to be you got to teach people to be strong and resilient you have to teach them to be kind you have to but, but you also have to teach them to fucking fight right not literally but sometimes yeah. right like you have to teach them that life is not always going to be sweet it's going to suck sometimes and that's tough i guess i mean i don't have kids but i it, like i i it seems like it would be difficult for me to watch my child struggle and not intervene and help them immediately. Yeah. But there is a benefit to that struggle, right? Absolutely. I mean, we definitely got that growing up. Working in a bakery was so beneficial, and I write about that in my book, and also playing sports. Um, but I think the biggest thing when having children is showing them how to use their voice and not diminishing it and not diminishing mm. their self-worth and value because growing up it's like okay if dad tells me to shut the fuck up i'm gonna shut the fuck up <laughs> you know sorry for the language but it's true it's very important to uplift the voices of your children um because you know let's say i did have that maybe i would have handled that the very first initial situation better or i would have been able to talk about the depression and suicidal ideation i was going through with you know, a teacher or my mom or my sisters or something, but I just felt like I was such a fuck up. I had to look outside of my own family. Mm. So <clears throat> you go through all this and it circles back to uh, this older man grooming you um, and things go off the rails and then you progress through that. We, we don't need to get too deeply into that. Mm -hmm. um, you can use your imagination or read the fucking book, asshole, about what <laughs> happened there. But, <clears throat> you know, you come out the other end, and like I said before, sometimes my friend Lauren actually just texted me this the other day. She's been doing it lately. Uh, sometimes you just got to sit in your own shit, you know what I mean? Not yeah. literal shit, but yeah, sometimes you just got to sit there and, and think about what's happened and what you've done, the mistakes you've made, and the things other people have done to you, and you have to become okay with that. Mm -hmm. And like your only option is to fucking learn from it. And, and then I think the final step is to help other people learn from it as well. Yes. So, but let's reverse here it's post this bullshit and you have no one that you feel like you can talk to about it even though 
technically you're you've severed the connection um but you're still sitting in this and, and then what happens like you just start getting fucked up all the time that's what most people do right? yeah i started coping with drugs and alcohol <clears throat> at 16. Uh, you should use drugs and alcohol for fun yeah. not for therapy by the way <laughs> yeah um and that's the biggest thing is I had such an unhealthy relationship with myself. And I, I just, the only thing I knew how to do was just drink and mm. at that age and smoke weed. I didn't get into hard drugs until after high school. What was that like when, when you graduated? I mean, like your, your plan at 13 was to play soccer and fucking get an education and mm -hmm. find get a full ride yeah, whatever just, right yeah but now you're now you're 18 and you're graduating high school and you're not even playing anymore no right? so I, what's what does 19 look like 19 looks like i have a boyfriend um his name's andre in the book um and he's 23 and we're just traveling and having the time of our lives drinking smoking doing drugs whatever yeah so it was it was pretty fun, honestly. Mm. I had a great time, and I felt a freedom. I felt like I got to get away from that trauma of being the girl who lied about sexual assault right. and was now having this huge skeleton in her closet. That dang, like I was raped, and like this mm. man is still stalking and harassing me, and is still wants to be in my life. You know, even though he has a family of three and a wife, like mm. that that still blows my mind. You know, ten years later. He's still yeah i mean uh, so um <clears throat> one of the things these predators do is they try to isolate the person right yeah um because if anybody else is around they're going to notice that weird shit's going down yeah um and so i assume you never like met any of his friends or anything right i met his family how how i'm sorry what <laughs> yeah um i tore my acl and I was just getting high on Oxy or whatever it was uh, over summer. And he picked me up. He was like, no, it'll just be fine. It's okay. And this is after the rape. And I was just I was just so high and miserable. I was like, whatever, I have nothing else to lose. Mm. Um, and I met his wife and I met his three children. And when I walked, I'm on my crutches and his wife looked at me like <clears throat> I was her competition and that always stuck with me, especially now, because I always think like, if my husband were to bring home a sixteen-year-old girl, yeah, what well, under what what alarms. was what was the context that you were in his home? The context was, oh, uh, she doesn't have any family; she has no relationship with her dad. I'm just mentoring her, and she hurt herself, and she she's she's just been using drugs. So I was like, he used my own victimhood back mm -hmm. on me to make excuses for himself. So, yeah. Uh, so just from my professional experience, 37-year-old <laughs> you know, dudes don't mentor 16-year-old girls typically, yeah. right? That's very weird. Um, <clears throat> but what about other men in his life? Did you meet any of them? No. Like I, I just – I think it's important to see like a, a lot of people – there are a lot of enablers of shit behavior yeah. in life. People that it's like, oh, that's just this dude. He's a fucking weirdo or whatever. It's like, no, that dude's a fucking creep, man. Mm -hmm. Like, you want that guy around your kids? No. Then why are you fucking letting him be around other people's kids? Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, <clears throat> so you go on a bench for a little while. Mm -hmm. And then what happens next? Um, at his house? No, no, no. Just like in your life. Oh, after. um yeah, I just get into drugs and alcohol. I party a lot. It's it's hard for me to really remember a lot of uh, my early 20s just because there was so much drinking and partying going on. And it was like very lighthearted. I mean, I was doing drugs, but I I was having fun. I had friends like it wasn't dark and I didn't feel like I was an addict. I just felt like a normal 20 year old kid. Um, and that was pretty light. And then uh, my boyfriend at the time, uh, he saw an issue with it. And he he was like, you have a lot of trauma, a lot of shit going on. You need to do like some type of intervention mm. with yourself. So he introduced me to plant medicine, um, which I did for the very first time. And that kind of just opened my eyes to what, it was the very first time I ever heard the word like victimhood. Mm. Like I put myself in victimhood, um, 
the facilitator, the very first thing he said to me when I walked in the door, he looked me dead in the eye and he goes, I am not your father. Like, don't look for that mm. in me. Like, I'm just here to instruct you on how to heal yourself. And um, doing this like sacred plant medicine on the floor, physically purging was, it was so relieving. Um, and I would definitely say it opened up my eyes. Um, in more than one way, <laughs> spiritually, and you know, you have hallucinations and things like that. Mm. Um, so you're talking about like uh, DMT or what? No, ayahuasca, ibogaine. Not ibogaine. Mm. Yeah, the ibogaine's pretty fucking brutal. Yeah, that so is, I that's was not on the, the the other ones. Ayahuasca, not so much. I guess maybe in a lower dose. Uh, DMT though, you is. You only can, last you, 10 you, minutes. Yeah, you can use that recreationally. <laughs> so, I, um, but not ibogaine. Ibogaine. I, is, only only a complete fucking psychopath would use ibogaine <laughs> recreationally. Yeah. Um, so you're on the floor for three days. That just mm. means you're tripping for three days straight, mm -hmm. basically. Um, and a lot of people who have PTSD or went through, you know, I mean, for God's sakes, I was raped for four hours. <laughs> it was very traumatizing. Um, it. For people like who have been through very traumatic things, it's really great for mm -hmm. because you do these physical purges and you can actually feel like the the trauma of that. Like it feels like it's like leaving your body, but at the same yeah. time you're having these hallucinations of whatever. Well, from a physiological standpoint, what it's doing is interrupting the neural pathways you've created between your prefrontal cortex and your amygdala where your memories are stored, or your oh, hippocampus wow. rather where your memories are stored. Okay. So it's like if you think about the creation of a memory is creating – uh, uh, this isn't the right terminology, I don't think, but creating deeper folds in your brain, basically, mm -hmm. right through that neural pathway. And this is what happens with, that's why the stellan ganglion blocks w work for a lot of people is because <clears throat> your brain, we, we our, our brains are very sophisticated machines that are designed to, to distinguish between threats and benefits, right? Right. Threats or predators or whatever, existential threats or or disease or whatever, and then benefits or food, shelter, Maslow's hierarchy needs, basically. Um, that's what your brain is built to do. So when it, when it associates over a long period of time or in a very traumatic way, one particular type of person or action or scene or location or whatever smells a lot yeah. uh, with some kind of violence that happened to you or whatever else, then that becomes locked in pretty tight. And there's only one way to get rid of it, really. Yeah. And it's not like years and years of therapy will not do what plants will do for you. Yeah, apparently. they call um, an abogaine session like 20 years of therapy mm. in a weekend. And it really, it did so much for me. I felt so much lighter after afterwards. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, the book is called Still Fucking Alive. Why don't you call it that? Uh, because when I woke up after committing suicide, the mm. first thing I said was, I'm still fucking alive. And I, and I was angry. I wanted to die. Mm. I, I was so, it came from the depths of my belly. I scared the nurses and the doctors. Like I just sprung up after they were doing, you know, CPR and life saving procedures on me, but I'm still fucking alive. That was what I very first said when I woke up. But when I was in rehab, um, when I was 23, you know, I would run three miles every morning and it got to a point where I was started to do like mental body scans mm. and I was like, dang, like I should have like some type of issue, you know, after committing suicide, mm. drug use, um, my heart stopping, just all these things. And I was doing this mental body scan and I go, man, I'm still fucking alive. And then it just clicked for me. And uh, I decided to write my book that day. <laughs> it took me about a year and a half, but that's the day I decided yeah. I needed to write a book about this. Um, and how, how do you explain to me the difference between like the moment that you wanted to die? Because a lot of people in our audience can, uh, can relate to that. Um, I, as a matter of fact, I like most of our military audience probably has lot have lost more friends to suicide than combat. That's definitely there's mm -hmm. at least double the amount for me, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we all kind of have a sense of that. But I want to. What was it between that moment where you didn't want to be here anymore, and then a moment when you did want to be here? The, what was the big difference? I guess not not just what made a change, which I I would like to hear that too. But what did it feel like? What was the difference? Um, 
Well, the difference was the person looking back at me in the mirror. About 45 minutes before I committed suicide, I looked at myself in the mirror and I didn't recognize the person looking back at me. I wanted to kill that person. Mm. <laughs> what I didn't realize is I wanted to kill the addiction, the unknowingly identity that I built for myself and who I thought I was and just all this trauma and things like I wanted to kill that part of me, the dark side of me. Mm. Um, but I was like, no, I got to kill that fucking person that I don't recognize. Um, and I don't necessarily feel like, you know, everyone, I chose suicide, but that night it felt like suicide had chosen me. That's the feeling that I felt. And I felt like because I didn't recognize myself, that that gave me permission to do it. Hmm. Um, so that was that feeling. Um, and I also wanted to just go home and feel relief. Like I was tired of hurting. <clears throat> I was tired of pain. So that was that feeling. When I knew I wanted well, that's, to. That's disassociative disorder, right? So like <laughs> yeah. you, don't, you, know, you no longer connect with anything. You don't see yourself as a real person. You're just well, I like, was in a drug-induced psychosis sure. at that point too. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. And then. What, when did it start? When did you start feeling like yourself again? Um, I started feeling like myself around, I would say, uh, January of 2022. Um, I, when I was in rehab, you know, I, I learned things like self-worth and obviously mm-hmm. I got sober, but they put me on uh, Lexapro and Bisperone when I was in there. Which was good because my body was so, like, my nerves were so much, like, I needed to come back down. Mm -hmm. It was good for the time being um, and to get me through that point. But that's when I, January is when I got off my antidepressants. And it was the first time, you know, I started drinking and using at 16. So I hadn't known, like, myself or my emotions or anything about myself because I'd just been on drugs and alcohol for the last eight years at this point. And so... um, when I got off prescription medication, you know, I was sober for eight months at that point, And I was like, you know what, I just want to get to know myself. And that's really when I felt like, okay, I got Marissa back, like before any of the trauma, before anything, I just felt like myself. <clears throat> I don't know if I've ever heard anybody put it that way before that, what? like, uh, it didn't feel like you. So it wasn't like suicide, right. Or that, you what you're describing is disgust with yourself right like you see who you are and you're like disgusted with that so you wanted to get rid of that person yeah that's that's uh an interesting way to put that but i think probably apropos it's it, probably something that a lot of other people have felt as well i think there's a lot of <clears throat> especially with uh, moral and hidden injuries, right? Like mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress and shit like that for military people I'm, I'm speaking about. They see their buddies dead or with one leg missing or burned up or some shit. And, uh, you know, they're getting by. And here I am just with my feelings hurt. You know what I mean? Because of some shit that happened to me. There's a lot of shame involved in that. And the same way, like, that's a big thing for rape as well, obviously. I right? had a lot of shame, mm-hmm. regret, and guilt. Um and I write about that in my book, how important it is to release that because it inhibits you from like the purity of your free will. And you don't recognize the person anymore. No. Like you, you can't, your, your brain can't handle hating itself that much. No. So you have to d- disassociate and make that a, a third party, right? right? It's it's me and my brain and then this asshole over here who's living out my life. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, I think that's probably pretty common for a lot of people that are in this situation. Um, so once... Once you start feeling like a person again, now it's time to get get moving. This I tell people this a lot. It's actually part of my favorite uh, spy series. This this book that this series that Greg Her- Hurwitz writes um, called The Gray Man and uh, I'm sorry, uh, The Nowhere Man. Excuse me, I'm getting my books mixed up. The Nowhere Man. He's basically like an ex operator who helps people that need help, right? It's like the A-team, but one dude, basically. I don't know if you remember the A-team because you're like 12 years old or whatever. But um, <clears throat> like the last thing he does, and this is something that happens with, and a lot of times with uh, rape and then drug and alcohol counseling, the last step, not like the 12-step program, but the last step to give somebody their autonomy back is to give them the opportunity to help somebody else, right? Because right. then you 
you cross over that threshold from victim to warrior or whatever you want to call it, victim mm-hmm. to helper, it doesn't matter how you phrase it. What was that moment for you, right? Was it right in the book? Like where you felt like, all right, I've crossed this hill and now I can tell other people how to get past it. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's when I started writing the book was when I felt like I made, you know, that arc um, in my journey. And the whole purpose of me writing it was, you know, I want my, you know, I'm a Gen Z mm. <laughs> and a lot of my generation uh is stuck in that victimhood and the label of being a victim and being offended and all these things. And it's like, okay, maybe these, I wouldn't change anything that's happened. Nothing in my story because it made me who I am. And it's like, maybe these things happen to like build you up to be a fighter, you know, like, and and show you how to come out tough. Um, so yeah, writing the book, I, w- I was really proud of myself to write this book and put it all out there. And putting my worst vulnerable moments for the world to read was allowed me to release lasting bits of that shame and regret Mm. and guilt you know it's just a part of my life and since putting it out you know you hear the statistic one in three women have been sexually assaulted or raped Mm. every single woman that has read my book relates to my story Mm. and um you know this isn't to say like oh a me too movement or anything but you know i just want to encourage men and women to really find their self-worth and self-respect and become family people again and become strong again and have the spirit of a fighter you know i said in my book i write like you become a better fighter to become a better lover a better Mm. friend a better family member um and that's just the only message i want to put out there you know it's it's you versus the person looking back at you in the Mm. mirror you know well it's a good message um and a good way to end this show uh i appreciate you coming here today thanks for having me yeah it's uh it's this is, uh, I think this stuff is important. Um, people say there's no handbook for life. It's like, well, there's a bunch of them actually, right? Yeah. There's a lot of recorded experience out there and people who have tried to articulate their struggle and how they come through it. So, uh, and it's, it's often very painful. We've gone through it with our buddies who have written books about their military experience and shit like that. It's not fun mm-hmm. to have to rehash all that stuff. So, it's good that you did it. I appreciate it. Go buy the book. It's called Still Fucking Alive. It's on Amazon. That's got her face <laughs> on it, so it should be pretty easy to find. Again, thank you for coming today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen. Citizen.